0: Well then, trusting a God for his guidance and help, let's turn to Second Kings and chapter 5 again. And in verse 1, we read that Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great and honorable man in the eyes of his master, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was also a mighty man of valor, but a leper. All that, but a leper. Now, of course, the uh, dominant incident in this chapter is the healing of Naaman from his lepers. <laughs> Uh, Christ refers to this incident in the New Testament and we read that at the beginning of the service. Christ (coughs) uses this healing as an example of the way in which God's grace uh, always went outside of Israel and outside of his own covenant people and was able to reach people sometimes very far away. And The Lord referred to that on the occasion when he was preaching himself in his whole town of Nazareth. And, of course, as he began to preach, the response to that preaching was very good and positive. But as he went on, the devil came in and started to turn the people against him. And they were essentially demanding a sign of him, saying, we have heard some of the wonderful things you apparently did down the road in Capernaum. Now do some of these things for us as well. So they're not really impressed with the word as they should have been impressed with it. And they didn't see the glory of Christ in the message that he was giving. They wanted signs and wonders which is what people often do. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Now Christ didn't indulge that desire for signs and wonders he never did. Miracles are not there to impress unbelievers. So he didn't perform for them with the kind of performance that they wanted. In fact he simply warns them that if they continue with this kind of response to the gospel of God's grace then the Lord will take the gospel away from them and he will give it to others. And later on, if you follow the Lord's ministry through, you'll remember that he said that very powerfully to them just before he was crucified, that the uh, Lord would take the kingdom of God away from you, he said, as a nation, and he will give it to others, bringing forth the fruits thereof. These things should make ourselves uh, tremble and be alarmed at the thought that if we continue to abuse the good things God gives us, that God will take them all away and give them to others instead of ourselves. And that's when he takes in the example of this man, Naaman, the leper. He took another example too. In Elijah, in Elijah's day, there was a famine. And he said, Elijah wasn't sent to help any of the widows in Israel, but he was sent way up north to Sidon, to a little town called Zarephath. And there that woman was blessed. And then he takes the example of Elijah. He says there were many, many lepers in Israel in Elijah's day. But God didn't send Elijah to any of them, but to Naaman, who was the captain, or the commander-in-chief of the Syrian army. These things are reminders of the wideness of God's grace, the extent to which his gospel goes, but also the consequences of refusing the good things that the Lord is holding out to us. So it's foreshadowing uh, the gospel of Christ going out from the Jewish people to the far ends of the earth. And in connection with that, we should bear in mind that the healing of this man's body is parallel with something far more precious than that, which is the healing of this man's soul. And all the way through, as we look at Nehemiah, we're to remember that God isn't just dealing with his body, he is dealing with his soul. Now, sometimes he doesn't deal with them both at the same time. Sometimes Christ heals the body and it's afterwards that the soul is healed. Sometimes he heals the soul and it's afterwards that the body is healed. But when we see leprosy here, we're to think about sin. That doesn't mean that when leprosy grows in Naaman's body that he's thinking he's a sinner. It doesn't mean that at all. But it does mean that we're to understand that that is a picture of sin. And in God's time and in God's way, he brings Naaman to see exactly that. He brings him to a certain time when he understands that his leprosy represents sin. It's not important for us to identify exactly when, but to know that that is what's happening here. So let's fix that in our minds very clearly from the outset. What we have here is not just the healing of a body, it's the healing of a soul. And to those of us who know how important a thing a soul is... The healing of a soul is of far greater importance than the healing of a body. Man, when your soul is healed... There's a sense in which it doesn't really matter what happens to your body. You know that you're going to glory... And that you're going to be there eternally with the Lord. And what matters most, even if you are sick tonight... And are not being disrespectful towards your sickness... What matters tonight primarily is that your soul is healed before God. And that the leprosy of your sin is dealt with by God. So that you wash and you are cleansed. You are regenerated and born again, just like a new child in the kingdom of God. That is what the passage is really all about. Not just a man being healed from leprosy. Now of course, as I said before the reading, the passage here takes us back to the kingdom of Syria, around 840 BC. And as we saw in the morning, this is a kingdom on the rise, and God is supervising the rise of this kingdom under a a powerful king called Ben-Hadad. And one of the countries that he is keen on conquering is, of course, the country on their southern border, which is the country of Israel. And these border skirmishes that take place here, which we saw in the morning, are just little intrusions on the part of the Syrian army, just more or less organized, just to test what Israel's response is. That's the way uh, people work. Uh, Countries work like that. Leaders work like that. They'll just nudge here and there to see what the response is likely to be. Well, they soon discover that Israel is rottening out to its core She's lost her faith and hope in God putting her trust in people and in false gods and false philosophies and so Ben-Hadad is preparing an invasion which is actually soon about to happen. And the man who's going to be in charge of that invasion in Israel is of course this man Naaman who is the commander in chief of the Syrian army. Now That's a very responsible position. It's not a fool who rises to that kind of rank. A commander like that has to have significant intelligence. He has to have certain moral attributes or virtues. He's got to be courageous. He's got to be intelligent. He's got to be strong. He's got to be wise. And the Bible tells us here that he was a man of great strength and bravery in verse 1 a mighty man and a man of valour it's interesting that he was highly thought of we're told that he was held in high honour by the king and you can see that in the way in which the king in a sense humbles himself to ask a favour from the king of Israel who he's planning to annihilate very soon but that tells you how high a regard he had for Naaman. And, of course, Naaman was systematically giving victories to the country, so it's no wonder that he was held in high regard by the king. He was also held in high regard by the people. Now, there are celebrities in every day and age. I suppose it's a mark of the decaying nature of our culture that the celebrities that demand the adulation of the people are usually sports people and actors. And uh, sports people and actors are uh, way overrated when it comes to celebrity. I'm amazed at the amount of calling space and the amount of television time that's given to people who spend their lives uh, pretending to be somebody else. There really are more important things to do in the world. There are more important things that happen. But these celebrities are sports people and actors. Now, in Syria, they would have had their celebrities too, and certainly Neiman would be one of them. He was a man of significance, a man of worth, and young and old would recognize him as just somebody to be admired. Because the interesting thing is, he has not just respected this man, but he's liked. Now, not every man who's liked is respected, Uh, not every man who's respected is liked but it's interesting that here we have a man who's both respected and liked and you see the fact that he's liked in the way that other people deal with him for example when he's tempted to go back home because he's simply not inclined to bathe in the river Jordan for reasons that we'll see later it's interesting that his servants come and appeal to him and they say look look they, they, they address him respectfully and affectionately. My, my father, they say. If, if the prophet had asked you to, something, to do something difficult, you'd actually have done it. He's asked you to do something easy. Will you not do it? Will you not just give it a go? There's also the fact that the little Israelite girl, not well, the young woman, we should say, somewhere around 12 or 13, who was serving in his house as his wife's servant, she too cares enough, we saw that in the morning, I'm not going back to it, but she cared enough about Naaman to suggest a cure. Now, she knows who he is, she knows the hostility between one kingdom and the other, but she says, if you just seek out the man of God in Israel, your leprosy will be dealt with. You'll no longer be dead, a dead man walking, but you will live. So he's respected and liked and What more could a person ask for? You could say that everything's going swimmingly well. He's got one of the best jobs in the country. Very well off, respected and liked. But of course, the reality is that very often behind a closed door there's facts that are so different from how we perceive that door and how we think things are behind it. I mean, the fact of the matter is that Naaman's world is falling apart, and it's falling apart, of course, for a, a very simple reason, as verse one tells us so powerfully at the end of the verse: "Leper." Depending on the version of the Bible you got, uh, you might have an italics, but he was a leper, or but a leper. The Hebrew just says leper. In other words, the Hebrew is saying well he's got this and he's got this and he's got this and he's got this leper. As much as to say well what's all that then? Because the leprosy casts its shadow on everything. It means that all he is and all he's got just comes to nothing. Because he's got that. He's got the disease that nobody wanted to have. From which there was No going back, no restoration, for which there was no healing. And it's hard to convey the sense of dread people had when they suspected that some kind of scab or lesion on their skin might just be that. It's a bit like how people felt years and years ago when they started to have a persistent cough and TB was rife in the island. It's it's a bit like the way people feel now when they find a lump on the body in a place where you don't really want to find a lump in the body. And of course, at first it doesn't seem like much because that's how leprosy begins with just a kind of spot here and there on the skin. But as this scab or lesion begins to change and it begins to grow, uh, Neumann starts to worry. You know yourself what that's like. You, you dismiss a thing like this and say, oh, it's nothing. It's, this. it's a cyst or whatever it is. He dismisses it. But of course, as it does change and grow, he has to get a verdict on it. And of course, he'll go to the best doctors that money can buy because he can afford that. Israel herself had a, a, a priesthood that actually had to be trained in medicine as well as in theology especially for skin disease. I mean, if you look at Leviticus chapters 14, and I think part of 15 as well, but certainly 40 you'll find detailed regulations given in connection with scabs or lesions on the skin, what they look like. And the priest has to be able to recognize, is this leprosy or is it just a skin condition? Is, just, is this something that you can live with or is this something that's going to kill you? And if it was something that was going to kill you, you were to be shut out of a camp and you would essentially live in a leper's colony because, like I said earlier you are a dead man walking <coughs> and of course Nehman's worst fears are confirmed Nehman you've got leprosy you've got leprosy and therefore Neiman is a dead man walking now not all forms of fatal skin conditions are uh, were contagious depending on the precise form of skin condition that you had it could still be terminal as in this case but not contagious so he's able to live at home and he hides it as long as he can his wife knows, his family knows his servants know the little Elizabeth light girl knows and of course, the king knows. But Nayman knows that, in spite of everything, very soon his career's finished. Within a few years, he's dead, <coughs> and that friend's his life. Doesn't matter how good and glittery it gets at its best. Even if it's not solitary and poor, it is nasty, brutish, and short. There's no doubt about that, and. Everything can be lost just like that. I mean, just a bit of substance on your skin you go to the doctor and it's all over. As the psalmist said, man walks in a main shoe and we really do. We live, you know, as though we're going to live forever. Intellectually, you all know, I do, that we're all going to die. But do you believe that emotionally? Not really. There's something in you that's indestructible. Something in you that's immortal. The reason you feel there's something in you that's immortal is because there actually is. Because your soul will never actually die. It will never cease to be. But you will die. And you will go to the judgment seat of God. And none of us knows exactly when that will be. The Bible tells us that none of us knows what a day may bring forth. We add to that text, or an hour, Nothing wrong with adding that, providing you're not actually adding to the text, because how true it is. A day can change your whole life. A diagnosis can change your whole life. Now, most of you will know that God chooses leprosy in the Old Testament to be one of the great symbols of sin. That didn't mean that every leper was going to a lost eternity. That's another question. But it did mean that God chose this disease to be a kind of walking visual aid of what sin is actually like. For the simple reasons that there are things true about leprosy that reflect what is true about sin. And it's important that we know what these things are. First of all, Although it begins small, it just grows and grows and nothing can check it. That's sin. It's there when you're born, you're conceived in it. There's not much of it maybe in your childhood, but it grows and gets a grip. Different forms, different manifestations, but it puts its own character right throughout your soul. Of course, As leprosy disfigures you, so sin disfigures you too. Now, leprosy certainly did that. Because suddenly once it got a hold, particularly once it spread to your face, your nose would just fall off, your fingers would fall off, your limbs might fall off because you're rotting and decay. But the fact is that nobody wanted to look at a leper. The Lord Jesus Christ is described in Isaiah 53 as a kind of leprous man that we hid, as it were, our faces from him. Stricken. Stricken. Smitten by God and afflicted. That's how they saw him on the cross. Oh, how little they realised at that time that it was for their sins that he was stricken, smitten and afflicted. But a leper. Couldn't look at him. Nobody could look at a leper. Looking at a leper made you sick but that's what sin does, it disfigures us, you know we were originally created in the image of God that's how we were made and if you know your catechism you'll remember the first question and answer in the catechism which tells you that your chief end your reason for being, your reason for living is uh, to know God, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever But sin disfigures you. I mean, that's a wonderful figure to have, the likeness of God. But the disfiguring brings you into the likeness of the dead. Just little by little, month by month, year by year, you begin to decay and to be disfigured and to be more satanic, more deserving and more fit for hell than for heaven. That's the irresistible progress of sin that nothing can check except the power of God. Nothing can check it. Of course, as well as defiguring us, it does actually produce decay. That's what happens with leprosy. Your body rots and starts to fall apart. That's what sin does too. It decays the mind, it actually decays the body too. You know, when sin's finished its work, there's not much left of us. When you think of a soul in hell, when... God has taken away his grace and his kindness. And how much of that kindness he showed you in life. When God removes it all and you're left to yourself. There's not much left in hell. It's like a destroyed personality. It's falling apart. Weeping we're told. Wailing and the gnashing of teeth. That's how the Lord describes it. And our Lord is the truth and he tells the truth. It's the decay of a soul. You know, when people die, we say, well, the remains are there. The remains are in hell. What's left of the soul? And it's a sorry sight. Maybe you're conscious tonight that, that you are decaying yourself. That there's something in you that's decaying. Your life is ever darkening. Sin's getting a greater and greater hold, and you can't stop it. That's true, you actually can't. Only one power can change this and stop the decay. And of course, there was the smell of the leper. You know, if the sight of the leper was disgusting, if anything, the smell was worse. It's the smell of rotting flesh. Nobody wanted to be near That's a graphic picture of what our sin is like in God's nostrils. We think our sin is nothing. We think that God shouldn't care if we were angry. We think that God shouldn't really care that we didn't go to church. We think that God shouldn't mind too much if we don't respect the Sabbath day and keep it holy. We think God shouldn't care too much if I got drunk that night. We shouldn't care too much or God shouldn't care too much if I just was with somebody else's wife. Or if I was looking at these things online. Surely God doesn't care all that much. But it stinks in God's nostrils. Every single sin. And the more our sin accumulates, the more it stench in God's nostrils. And we need to remember that. How you see your sin is of no consequence. How I see it is of no consequence. Except in a subordinate sense. What matters is how God sees the sin. And we'd better all be sure that that's how God sees our sin. And that's how God judges it. God's not like us. He's very, very different. And critically, of course, and last of all, leprosy is terminal. It's terminal. No cure. No doctor. No physician. It's a death sentence. The problem is, with regard to sin, that we don't know that. At least we have the sense, you know, when we discover a lump in the body, we have a sense to be, sense to be a bit worried by it. And especially if, if it doesn't get better, we begin to get a wee bit worried, or again, a skin lesion, or anything, that we get worried. The problem with sin is that we don't. For the reason I mentioned a minute ago, we think that these little things, you see, are not that big. I mean, surely these things are not going to kill me, are they? The fact that I do get angry, or that I do get jealous, or that I don't keep the Sabbath day, or I don't go to church. These things aren't going to kill me, are they? Are these things really going to send me to hell? We better believe the seriousness of the condition. That these little sins are manifestations of what's actually wrong with your soul. And that it's just irresistibly getting worse and worse and worse. That's the reality and the fact is that once you understand that reality it clouds absolutely everything else from now on Naaman is a leper and that's all he is can you understand who that is that's all that matters now in his life it's what he thinks about when he wakes up in the morning it's what he thinks about when he's going to bed at night all the glory and the honour of being commander in chief in the Syrian army doesn't matter anymore (coughs) It's a cloud on every single horizon. It's a fly in every bottle of perfume. It's a crook in every lot. Are you wealthy, Nehemiah? Who cares? You're a leper. Are you popular, Nehemiah? You're a leper. Are you famous? You're a leper. Are you admired? You're a leper. You're a sinner. That's all that matters about you tonight. You're a sinner. That's the big problem you've got. You haven't got leprosy, you've got spiritual leprosy. You're dead men and women walking. You'd better believe it. Hell deserving and hell bound. That's enough of the sickness, there's shall cure. In spite of the fact that this is incurable, it's strangely curable. There's nothing on earth that can be done about it, but something from heaven can be done about it. Mm-hmm. It's a wonderful thing that Nehemiah hears about this cure at all. Of course, as we thought in the morning, it comes from a very unexpected quarter. It comes from the servant girl that's come into his house from Israel. Um, God has extraordinary ways of bringing the gospel to us and bringing us to the gospel. Um, he does it at a time we don't really expect it and in a way when we don't really expect. it. Uh, At some point, Naaman is culpable for actually buying this girl, or whatever it is, he he buys her, takes her into the house. That in itself is an act of sin, really, but God overrules that act of sin to make it an act of mercy. Isn't that astonishing? Isn't it astonishing that God can take a sinful act and make it a means of mercy? Well, that's the way God works. Now, when she says, look, if my master would just go to Israel, there's a man of God there, there's a God in my country, and there's a man of God in my country. If he would just go, his leprosy would actually be taken away. <clears throat> now, instinctively, he doesn't want uh, to act on that. Uh, for a whole host of reasons. It involves Israel. I mean who cares about that place? It involves God's people. It involves the church. It's the enemy. He doesn't even like the rivers. He doesn't even like the hills of the place. He's, he's instinctively opposed to the church. It's as though he says, well, whatever my problem, the church is not the answer. Uh, whatever my problem, Christians are not the answer. Whatever my problem, God is not the answer. I mean, you may think the same way. I have these problems and I can't deny them. But the church is not the answer and God is not the answer. Oh, friends, that is where you're wrong, fundamentally wrong. As long as you could possibly be. But that was his instinctive response to this. As well as the fact that it comes from a, a young 12 or 13 year old girl in his house. I mean, what does she know? I mean, she hasn't been round the world and seen it all. He, he knows the best doctors in the country. He probably knows the best doctors in other countries. And here's this little girl from Israel you know, saying, well, if you knew the prophet that I know in Israel your literacy would be dealt with. What does she know? If science can't sort out my disease, what can religion do for me? But still there's a strange fact that there's a power in this girl's life that neither Naaman nor his wife can deny. A serenity, a calmness, a power... faith that is both gentle and strong at the same time they can't deny that this girl ripped out of her home and ripped out of her family has shown an incredible spiritual strength and courage and she's able to articulate very plainly that if she can just find the man of God then the power of God will come into his life and he'll be healed and he acts on it he acts on it I suppose in a way, when you know you're really sick, what have you got to lose anyway? What have you got to lose anyway? When your life's finished or broken, when you're ruined, what have you got to lose anyway? If you really know tonight that you're a sinner before God, that your life is getting more (coughs) unjustifiable and harder to heal, what have you got to lose anyway? When Christ is offering his arm out to you and saying, take a hold of that, Take a hold of that and see where I take you. What have you got to lose? What have you got to lose? So he swallows his pride. Now he doesn't swallow much of it. Just a little sip at this point. It's a tough drink, pride. But he swallows enough to go to his king and say... This may sound ridiculous, you know, but there's a little Israelite in, girl in our house and she says that if I can get in contact with a man of God in Israel, that he'll take the leprosy away. Now, I don't know what the king's response to that is. But the king doesn't want to lose Mamah. And lo and behold, the cogs start to move. The whole thing's put in motion. uh, It's the wonder, friends, of God's providence and God's sovereignty. I mean, he moves a thing here and he moves a thing there. It's such an exciting thing to see. I feel incredibly sorry for people who think that this whole universe and this whole world is the product of chance. They expect us to ooh and ah at nature programs which give no place to a creator and to sit in awe at it. Well, I can't sit in awe at anything that's not designed and created. I mean, if these are the random results of the meaningless interaction of atoms and molecules, well, who cares? I'm not going to ooh and ah at random stuff. But once you tell me that God is in control of the whole thing, that not a butterfly flaps its wings without the control and the foreordination of God, well, that changes everything. That makes every act a providence, not a chance then. There's excitement in that. And once you start looking at the world as a thing that God is involved in, as a series of acts that God is initiating and controlling, well, that's an exciting thing. It's quite boring being a materialistic evolutionist, but it most certainly is exciting to believe that there is a creator behind everything. Here goes Naaman after this king. Like I said earlier, the last thing this king wants to do is go to the king of Israel to ask a favor. But lo and behold, he writes a letter and he says, I want you to heal this man. king of Israel gets the letter and he says, he's picking a fight. He's picking a fight. But word goes to Elisha. And Elisha sends a message back to the king and says, don't get upset about this, he says. Just send the man to me. Send the man to me. Let him come to me. You know Elisha's name, Eli and Shah, is my God the Saviour. Elijah's name is the Lord is God. Elijah's name is the Lord is Saviour. Let him come to me. Ah yes, that's the answer. Not because of who Elijah is, but who Elisha represents. The power of God is in him, the power of God is through him but he represents God represents the Saviour the Saviour has said and who says to you he says it to you come to me all you who labor all you who are heavily burdened you diseased people who are maybe even a stench in your own nostrils come to me and I will give you rest take my yoke take my yoke My burden is easy, my yoke is light. You will find rest for your souls. Come to me, he says. Come to me. Now I want you to note how Elijah deals with him. When Elijah is at home, uh, one of his own servants, probably Yehazi, who will come to next Lord's Day, he comes in and he says the commander in chief of the Syrian army is at the door on horseback strangely Elijah is left to stay inside, he doesn't come out which is unusual you'd expect him to come out instead he sends out a messenger and the messenger says that the man of God is telling you just to go to the Jordan and wash seven times now, so, it's strange conduct on Elisha's part, and it's also a bit of a strange message. And both things are so strange that Naaman is furious. The translation is good here, because the Hebrew word, two, two different words are used, one in verse 11 and the other in verse 12. One says furious, the other says in a rage, and they're both telling us that he was in a rage. He, he's not just wondering what the thing He's furious. You could envisage him almost shaking with anger that he's come down here and got that treatment and got this message. Why is he shaking with rage? Well, on the face of it, the reason that he gives is the Jordan. He says, "I'm not going to wash there for. I've got rivers in my own country, and as far as I'm concerned, they're better than any river in that filthy land." Could I not wash in a bana and fatter and be cleansed? And what's more, he said, I expected him to come out. And I expected him to, to wave his hand, which is what the Hebrew could mean, or even to strike his hand. Perhaps even to wave his hand or even to touch it, and it would all be gone. That's what I expected. But he's, he's angry that that's not what the prophet did. You know, when people are angry, very often... There's a reason for the anger. You have, to, you have to probe beneath it because why why is this so, why is he so angry? Well, it really stares you in the face throughout the passage. What is his problem? Pride's his problem. Pride. It's his biggest problem. Leprosy isn't his biggest problem. Just like cancer may not be yours. Pride. Pride is the mother from which all the sinful children descend. If unbelief is the parent sin up there, for the benefit of those listening, I'm pointing to my head, the parent sin in the heart is pride. And from pride and unbelief coming together, all the children are born. And this man is full of pride so are you and so am I and every Christian in here still wrestles with it but its back has been broken but it hasn't been broken in you who are not a Christian and it is a big problem the more you look at him the more you see it. you'll notice that he comes down from Syria to Israel notice the way he travels he takes his horses and his chariots Now, I suppose you could maybe justify that by saying that he needs a certain measure of safety making this journey, although he's got a pass from the king. But but what about the ten talents of silver and the six thousand golden coins and the ten changes of clothes, which comes to somewhere around about two million pounds? What's all that about? Well, do you not get the feeling that he's going to buy his healing? no man of God's going to do him a favour. No God is going to do him a favour. He's never going to be a debtor to a God. He's never going to be a debtor to a church. He's never going to be a debtor to a minister. He's never going to be a debtor to a Christian because he's had no time for these things all his life long. No. If he's going to be healed, especially if he's going to be healed in a church, he'll pay for it. He'll pay for it. Even if his life is sorted, he's not going to be any man's debt. You notice this, and it's in us all, you know. <laughs> oh, let, let's retain our dignity. Let's retain our dignity. He, he wants to have the initiative here. He wants to be free of any debt to anybody. That's the way we are by nature. He's not coming to Elisha like a beggar. He's coming to Elisha as the commander-in-chief of the Syrian army. That's no use. You can't come to God tonight proud of who you are. can't do it, friends. You can't take pride through the narrow gate that leads to everlasting life. You can't take it in. It's only as a beggar that you can come to God, openly prepared to say, that I have sinned and come short of the glory of God and my life is a wreck and I am hell deserving and I am hell bound that's the only terms on which you come into the kingdom of heaven and how difficult it is for us to really admit that to admit it to ourselves never mind admit it to a church or to administer or to anybody else this stubborn streak of pride we'd even rather buy our own salvation than take it free Can't get in proud to heaven. And you know, if if things are falling apart, I don't mean this in an unkind way, but that's not all bad, you know. It's not bad to be brought low, because except you become as little children, you shall in no wise enter into the kingdom of heaven. It's broken, you get in. Fool of yourself, you can't get in. And we all need humble. I don't care who you are who I was. We all need to be humbled. So he travels down to Israel like a man who thinks he can earn his own salvation. (laughs) You'll notice too that when he arrives at the door, he's still still like that. He stays at the door and he stays on his horse. And he admits himself. He says, well, I thought he would come out to me. The way that's written in the Hebrew, the words to me come first. I thought to me he would come out. (laughs) Um, Let's be clear here, you know, what Neiman says. I'm the important man in this meeting. N- not, not this prophet. Not this man of God. I'm the man that matters here. I, I don't go under this man's roof. Again, I, I, I've mentioned this man two or three times recently. i conscious my time's going on. I'll have to try and condense what I've got to say. But I mentioned the Roman centurion who was so humble, you remember, that when he heard Christ was coming to his house he went out to meet him because he didn't feel that he was worthy of having Christ under his roof. That's what the Spirit of God does. It just brings home to us how, how nothing we are and how God is all-glorious and all-worthy. Naaman's just right the opposite of that. Said, say, I'm not coming under this man's roof. I thought he would come out to me. Naaman's not just on a horse, he's on a high horse. And nobody gets into the kingdom of that either. He's still miles away. And as well as all that, there's the obvious pride and contempt for the people of God. Can't stand the Jordan River, can't stand the prophets, can't stand Israel. Probably looking forward to being in charge of the campaign that's going to take place next year. Maybe you feel like that about the church. It's possible you even feel like that although you're here. Mm. You would think, well, surely the fact that I'm here means that I can't be like that. Well, there's many different things that I can sometimes bring, bring you here or bring you to God's house. But peel away the layers. and Oh, you don't really like Christians and you don't really like the church. That's what, that's what he's like. Let me come in, pay my way, wave your hand and I'm back out of here that's how people come for a baptism and a funeral Oh, somebody's died and oh no in this community I have have to go to the church and I have to sit there and there has to be a service but you'll use it and you'll get it done and you'll get it over with and it's finished or maybe there's a baptism in some churches anyway and oh they expect me to get the child done or whatever that is and you go and get the child done and you'll use you'll use the people of God You'll use the church. You won't really help it, or care about it, or pray for it. You'll use it. That's exactly how he's using Elijah, with his money. Needs humbling. That explains what Elijah does, because Elijah doesn't come out to meet him. He sends a messenger out, with the message, go and wash in the Jordan. (laughs) Elijah doesn't do this because... Uh, he's proud himself. He doesn't do it because he doesn't care about Nehman or anything like that. He does it because he knows that's just the way he's got to do it. To get home to Naaman that Naaman, you're not calling the shots here. You're not dealing with me. I'm nothing. I'm nobody. You're dealing with the Lord, the God, the creator. The creator of your soul and the one who has given you leprosy. And If you were in your right place, you would even recognize that leprosy as a gift of God to shake you and to bring you to your senses. That's the God that you've got to deal with. And I need to tell you that this is not on your terms, neighbor. Salvation is on God's terms. He outlines the terms. He says repent and believe the gospel. He says turn away from your sinful, self-indulgent life and turn to God. Those are the terms. And I'm expressing them to you, Naaman, in this way, through my messenger. Just go and wash seven times in the Jordan. One thing that means is that Naaman's got to accept that God's provision is something that may just appear foolish in his sight. Did seven times in the Jordan? I mean, I'm sure he had been prescribed all kinds of cures. But this one... If you're here in the grip of a sin, and I don't know what that sin is, and it's destroying your life, destroying your family, and I don't know, it could be anything from gambling to to drink or, or pornography or anything like that. I don't know what it is. I don't know. But I tell you that nothing will help you, really. No programs, no rehabilitation. They'll do something. They'll tinker at the edges. But the river, although it flows in another channel, is the same river still. The only thing that's going to heal you at source and put you right is the power of God in your life which comes by recognizing the Lord Jesus Christ as the only saviour and falling on your knees confessing your sin and asking him to take your life and to make something with it. You say, do you you believe that? Are you supposed to think that do you really think that I will change by doing that? Yes, absolutely so. I know it sounds fantastic that where doctors and psychiatrists have failed that that act will succeed. But it does. God can do for you what man can't. And that's the bottom line. Wash you, clean you, make you new and give you a new start. There's no doubt that everything that he's asked to do has a symbolic value. Why the Jordan? Well, the Jordan was the river that marked off this world from the promised land. To wash in the Jordan means a new life and a new start. Washing itself is symbolic. As baptism reminds us, it means for the old filth to be somehow taken away and to come out clean and new. The number seven is Symbolic, As it always is in the Bible. Completeness. Just like a week is complete. With a Sabbath. That tells him that when he comes out of this river. He'll be completely changed. Not completely perfect. But every part of him is washed. His mind will think different thoughts. His heart will desire different things. He'll feel different emotions. His will will be able to desire something new. You'll be a different man. That's what Christianity does for you. It's not a, a thing you adopt. It's a thing you become by the grace and the power of God at work in your life. The world prefers the Abana and the Farpa of therapy, courses and tablets. They don't cut it. Only God can give you a new life. What was his response to that? He didn't want to. He was very unhappy. No, very unhappy. And he, he makes his way back home. But probably as he nears the Jordan River, I don't know, is he rethinking matters? His servants certainly are. Why don't you do it? Why don't you go for it? If they had asked you to do something difficult, you would. Yes, it, because that gives glory to us, you mm-hmm. see. If we can fix ourselves, glory to us. But why don't you just wash in the Jordan? I wonder, I must admit, I I have no direct evidence for this, but the thing that comes back to my own mind all the time is, why is that girl in the house? You know, there are a million ways God could have chosen to heal Mema. A million ways in which he could have chosen to heal heal Mema. But he, he takes that witness into his house. Now, do you think she was there for one sentence? It would be wonderful enough if she was. But I've got a feeling that her whole life and her whole speech was something that was constantly weighing in his mind. It's what moved him to make a little bit of a fool himself in the, of, of himself in the first place. And I I would suspect that it's what finally moves him to make a complete fool of himself in the eyes of the world that anybody is watching. He decides to strip himself and to go and dip in the Jordan River. And if He had only sipped a cup of pride. Uh, That's a wrong figure to use. Uh, He had only begun to deal with his pride earlier. He now really deals with it. And he immerses himself in a river that he despises. Belonging to a people and a church that he's despised all his life long. He simply does what God told him to do. That's all you've got to do. What does God require you to do? To repent and believe the gospel. And it's an interesting thing that when you do start out doing what God wants you to do, the devil immediately comes in and tries to stop you. My guess is that he probably came to Naaman on the sick dip and said to him, Are you not being a bit stupid, Naaman? Just like Israel, who were supposed to go seven times round Jericho so that God would enable them to seize the city. I'm sure on circuit number six they feel like saying, there's not a stone crumbling in this wall. There's nothing happening. Do we not look a bit stupid, maybe, marching round in a circle? And does he not look a bit stupid on the sixth day? Yes, that's the way the devil comes to us all. I mean, all you may decide to do is come to a prayer meeting and um, perhaps nothing particularly works and the devil says, see, see, nothing really worked and nothing changed. Carry on doing what God wants you to do. And he dips a seventh time. And when he comes out, he comes out with his flesh like a little child. The miracle regeneration and of new birth. I say I've gone on too long I'm just going to cut it there. We'll come back to it God willing next time Let us pray O Lord our God have mercy upon ourselves, each one of us upon, our poor hell-deserving souls look upon us and grant us grace to recognize our own leprosy, to accept the diagnosis that your word brings into our lives, and to look to the only one who can heal it. There is only one physician worthy of being called a great physician, who reaches deep into the soul where no one else can reach, who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean thing. Can a leopard change its spots? But you can make a sinner into a saint. Oh, may that be true, even in one heart, this evening, in Christ's name. Amen. Our last singing is in Psalm 51. Psalm fifty one. <clears throat> uh, a great prayer, of course, for cleansing uh, that David offers up. And he asks in verse two to be cleansed from sin and thoroughly washed. In verse uh, seven he says to thou with his sprinkle me. And I shall be cleansed so. We'll sing the first two stanzas, and then we'll sing six and seven. The first two stanzas, and then six and seven. Let's start to sing.
1: Water.